Good afternoon. Before we commence today's Insights session, I'd like to remind you all of the Insights flagship risk management event for 2017, the ERM seminar. It is a one-day seminar on Wednesday, the 10th of September, and this year's theme is Responding to Risk. Focusing on practical responses to the key risks faced by the financial services industry. If you have not registered yet, the early bird registrations will be closing on Friday and there is a webinar option for those who are unable to attend in person. And now for today's insight session, influencing and engaging stakeholders. It is, a, it is key to developing effective relationships both internally and externally. Today, Kate will be sharing some tips and tools about these skills and how to successfully put this in practice. Kate has over 20 years of experience having built relationships with underwriters, management, brokers, reinsurers and clients. Please join me in welcoming Kate. Thanks Jennifer and thanks for a good turnout today. It's really happy. I'm really happy to see some familiar faces in the audience and uh, I think this was a great opportunity for me to come and give something back to the Institute and to share my experiences with you all. I've lived overseas for a long time and um, have young children and, and work part-time so it's actually quite difficult to engage in a range of the forums and committees at the Institute and when I got the chance to talk today I thought, yep, great, I'll, I'd love to take that and share with you some of the, the experiences that I've um, had over the years, 20 years. I'm obviously um, started working very young. Uh, so, as Jennifer said, I've worked in consulting, broking, reinsurance and other insurer environments and the greatest technical skills I've learned were probably working for Tillinghouse in an actuarial consultancy uh, and Catlin, uh, a reinsurance um, reinsurer with Lloyds and also Benfield Remetrics in London. But the greatest soft skills or communication skills customer service, influencing skills and leadership skills, I found by pushing myself outside of actuarial spheres. So I worked as a technical broker for Aon Benfield in London and my current role at Suncorp is not a tradi traditional uh, actuarial role. I work in Kaplan Reinsurance. Today we're talking about influencing and engaging stakeholders. Hopefully there'll be some practical tips and things that you can go away and experiment with. Uh, I have some experience in this area, but I consider myself very much a learner. And I'm going to share some of my observations over my experience. And I'd like you to think about the context of um, your environment, because every environment's different, and all I can do is talk to you about some of my experiences, but hopefully it'll translate into something useful for you to consider. Um, this next slide... Actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to talk today about um, change. But before I start, I'm just going to check in with you all and make sure that you've come here because you actually think there's something that you can learn, that you're looking to develop your influence and engagement skills and that you think it's relevant to your career development. It's something positive that you can do within your organisation. When I look at this picture and I think about um, a person standing in, a, in an environment where they can see that the current situation is not ideal, um, they have a vision of a brighter future 
and a situation that they think could be a better position and they're trying to pull it towards themselves. Now it's pretty clear that you can't do it on your own. One person is really not going to be successful in making a lot of change and having influencing skills and being able to engage stakeholders is what's going to help you get other people on board to make change happen. Um, today we're going to go through a bit of a structure with a range of questions. I like asking questions and I like promoting curiosity. Uh, this is the usual list of questions but we're not going to start with who, we're going to start with what. I like this definition of influence. The ability to connect, engage and get individuals to act on what you have to say influences increasing your listeners' trust and ability, believability in you. And I think there's three key points to take from this. One being trust, one being believability, and the third thing is around communication style. And if you think about the biggest influences in your own life or in the general public, they're often very confident, energetic, and they have a lot of consistency in their messaging. Importantly, they're also very authentic. So the messaging that they are communicating is something that they believe in. What they say is what they think. They've probably tested it on a range of people before they've started messaging more broadly and they have an alignment of views and confidence that what they're having to say is going to have an impact and connect with other people. In a work environment, Influence can come from, your credibi from credibility in your area of expertise. So in a previous role at Catlin where I might have been considered a technical expert in valuing heavy motor or pricing DNO, people would listen to me when I'd talk on these topics. But if I started talking at Suncorp in a di very different role about these things, it wouldn't ring true necessarily because that's not what I currently do and that's not the reputation that I've built within Suncorp. So I think there's a piece around what is your current role, what's your area of expertise and, and building people's trust in you as a technical expert in those areas. Now I wanted to touch on what I think influence is not. It's not manipulation and it's not assertiveness. So to me manipulation is is a very self-serving purpose. You know, potentially there's some deception in there, potentially you're utilising people in an organisation to serve your purpose, which may or may not benefit the broader purpose of the organisation or the benefit of the people that you're working with. An example of that is where you get people to do work and you take credit for their work. Um, it's not assertiveness and I, I'm a fan of assertiveness. I think it's important to be able to have a communication style that enables you to have your views. But there's a shortfall there in terms of how open-minded you might be to listening to other people's point of view. So assertiveness can let you down if you're not open to other ideas and views. So to me, influence is not manipulation or assertiveness. It's finding that win-win for all the parties involved. I think you're more likely to have influence if you have a mutual interest. Often, and in particularly in the Suncorp case, this is what's best for the customer. It's important to be adaptable and open to development of a better outcome through collaboration. And this is where the engaging stakeholders comes into it. 
when I was first asked to talk on this topic, the title was Stakeholder Management. And I deliberately changed it because I think there's a difference between managing stakeholders and engaging stakeholders. To me, stakeholder management is when you have a change initiative, a decision is made, and it's really a largely a communication plan. For me, engaging stakeholders and using your influencing skills is actually around coming up with a way of engaging and involving people to develop decisions, to develop better outcomes, getting a diverse group of people together to build on ideas and come up with something that is probably better than one person can come up with on their own. So I think of engaging stakeholders as a way to involve people. What it is not, um, I hope that it's, it's not a way of getting people together for ineffective meetings. And I do genuinely think it's, it's got to be an approach that's authentically trying to build on ideas, consider alternative views, and work on developing solid recommendations for change. Ineffective meetings, engaging the wrong stakeholders, or having different beliefs to what you say, or manipulating people's ideas, really reduces trust, reduces your own authenticity and believability, and it will make it harder for you to have influence in the future. So next question, why? This is always a good one. It's a great motivator understanding why we do things. Um, consider why you want to develop influencing and engaging skills. Could it help you get some decisions made so that your current job's easier? Could it help you be heard? Actuaries are really great at coming up with great technical pieces of work and how do you get the messages across around what the implications are and so what decisions the business should make? Could it help you come up with solution-orientated approaches? Could it help your career progression? I would argue yes. I've realised the value of these skills particularly since joining Suncorp. Soon after I arrived, there was a change in CEO with Patrick Snowball leaving and Michael Cameron coming on board. At that time, there was 14,000 staff across general insurance, life insurance and bank, three big different entities. That's a lot of responsibility for one person. One person who's channeling a lot of information and decision-making on direction of the business to the board. And I think if... if how does, how does it all work? I found it really fascinating to try and think about if you were the CEO, how do you make decisions, how do you find direction, how do you move forward? I mean, if you had a CEO that was regularly inundated with a stream of open-ended questions without solutions, it would be an enormously difficult job. No doubt you'd get burned out really quickly. As one person, you can't be a technical expert in every field. You, you won't be able to make the right decisions on every topic. So the key for a CEO to be successful is really to find trusted advisors within the business that are tech technical experts, make sure that there's a process of really good collaboration, gathering diversity of views from a diverse group of people. We want to avoid the pitfalls of groupthink and confidence that the implications of decisions are well understood and that the risks are well understood. So I do think that these skills of influencing and engaging stakeholders 
help flow through to really solid decision making all the way to the CEO and to the board. So let's go on to the next question. Who? It's really good to take the time to think about the, the particular topic that you want to influence on and maybe you've all got something in mind now and we can start applying things as we go through the next stages of the presentation. Have a good think about who is relevant to the success of your initiative, who are the influential who's relevant, who's influential and who's a collaborator. So I'll give you an example. In my current role, um, and I look around the room and know there's some people here that are familiar with this, um, in the Kaplan reinsurance space in Suncorp, we're often looking at ensuring that our reinsurance programs are really good de design, that it's sufficient to meet our needs, it optimises the balance of capital, versus the capital of our reinsurance partners. There are a lot of stakeholders. So if we ever want to make a change to anything, there's a lot of people to involve in this process. And I thought it would be a good example to share with you today to work through some of these three groups of people that you want to consider as your stakeholders. The first thing I would say is though, if you've got a big initiative, make sure that you've got a business sponsor someone senior in the organisation who supports you going through this process because often there's a lot of people to involve. So when I was thinking about this, and I do think about it regularly, um, I've become very aware of who are my collaborators first, who are the people that I want to work with to get the right ideas on the table. And often it's worth starting with product and underwriting teams the people that are aware of the day-to-day -day problems that may arise or potential gaps in coverage or who have views about how it's affecting their profitability. Actuaries are vital in this sort of decision-making. Most organisations that look at reinsurance have got risk-based capital models that are really good at modelling all the different lines of business, the potential volatility and diversification across the business and using them to get a view of what reinsurance works is important. It also is usually a valuable tool in assessing whether your recommendations meet the risk appetite, um, capital trade-offs and the implications for earnings volatility. Key to this as well is coming up with practical ideas. So we would look outside the organisation and work with our trusted reinsurance brokers and our strategic reinsurance partners who provide a good commercial awareness of what's viable and ideas about pr the pricing, which always does come back to the decisions at the end. And then think about how do you get these people together to collaborate? What's that way that's going to make sure that you get the right ideas on the table and that you build on them? And we'll get on to that next. But the most influential people in the decision about changing a reinsurance program are really the C-suite, your CFO who controls how much you spend, your CEO who has to balance up a whole range of how the business is performing, your appointed actuary is relevant because you're relying on actuarial models, you're looking at the risk appetite. The chief risk officer's also got a critical role there in terms of risk appetite. So they're in, in our space the key influential people that we need to engage. 
further to that, there are people who should be informed. So any change that we make to our reinsurance program will have a knock-on effect to, for example, the people in our reinsurance operations team who are processing claims and premiums. Uh, also, the actuarial valuations team may need to look at things differently and, and be well aware of changes that we might make to the program. So you can see there's a really broad spectrum of stakeholders to engage in this example. Once you've kind of sat back and thought about all the people you want to engage, I think it's really important to take time as well to put yourself in their shoes and consider their interests. What are their priorities? How much time do they have to get involved in your, your initiative? And what are going to be their incentives and drivers or motivators? There's a whole range of points there that we could spend a lot of time going into. Um, but I think that it really comes down to your individual example that you're thinking about and considering each of these factors from their point of view. In the end, if you want to engage people to join your project and to get the, the best um, contribution from them in the project, really understanding why they may be interested is quite key. What is it about their role, their responsibilities, that means that there's a win in it for them? After all, we're not trying to manipulate them to do work to get an outcome. We want to make sure that they're, they're genuinely, authentically contributing, they're considering their area of expertise, um, the, the risk aspects or the actuarial aspects that they need to um, opine on to make a decision at the end. Sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, so the next question, when and how? Um, every organisation is different and I think my example, I'm talking from a large organisation and hopefully it's a lot simpler in your own organisations or there's some parallels that you can draw on. Um, the when and how to me come down to planning, your communication style and a solution orientated approach. So making time to plan, it does save time, it does take time, but it saves panic later. And the more stakeholders that you have, the more time you need. So in the example I just gave, I would start working backwards from a board meeting and I'd be looking at those key influential stakeholders and their representatives and I'd be figuring out when do I need to engage them so that I can have their views, their feedback incorporated into our ultimate decision before we go to the board. I'd be working quite quickly to get the collaborators together to see how much time it's going to take to get them involved and understand what other pressures there are on their time. And I think even for small examples of where you might be influencing, always consider the person that you want to talk to and how you can make it easy for them to contribute. And often that's not a matter of, um, I've got to make a decision on this, I wanted to see something, some result tomorrow, so I've got to go and find someone who can look at something today. The more time you can give people and the more planning and, um, and awareness of their engagement you can give, the better. If you need to do a big, big exercise and engage stakeholders into um, working groups and regular meetings, there's a lot to plan and if you can, um, take some of these principles on board, I think you'll find it useful. 
when you communicate with your stakeholders, make sure you're really clear about what you expect for them. Why are they engaged in this particular project or initiative? What is it that you want them to contribute? Talk to them about the overall objective. What is it that you're trying to achieve and make sure it's really clear and simply articulated. Come up with the why is it important to them. What's, what's really in it for them and what's relevant to them. Give them some clear timing um, and an outline of the overall plan. And actually in this distributed leadership that we're seeing more and more with um, flat leadership structures and needing to engage people who are not in your team and not in your area of responsibility, invite them to respond and wait for actually engage them and get their buy-in at the outset. In terms of communication, that's a big field of discussion in itself and we're all communicating all the time and it takes many different forms, presentations, reports, um, water cooler conversations, meetings. Here's just a few key things to think about in your communication style in terms of how you become an influencer. Communication is always two-way. It's not just about what you're sending as your messages, it's also about listening and listening is really important. Particularly if you're in that collaborative environment where you're trying to get working group members to contribute. You know, if, you've, if you're one that's always got ideas um, and you're worried that you're going to forget them, write it down so that you can actually really listen to someone else's idea and come back to your idea. So whatever's the focus of the conversation, try and build on those ideas as much as possible. I think there's some, in every organisation, there's some really good leaders who have great communication skills and you should look out for them in your organisation. You can all probably think of someone who you think is a good leader with good communication style, someone that you could aspire to. It wouldn't hurt to have a conversation with them and find out how they've learnt their skills and pay attention to, to their style, their body language. There's always something you can learn. On the body language side, I think there are a couple of things that I noticed uh, early on as an observer in large meetings. And I used to always leave meetings as a junior actuary thinking, I wish I'd said that or I wish I'd thought of this. And actually over time, once you develop, develop your voice and want to be heard, there's a few interesting... Um, body language things that I'd like to share. Um, so at, in, in a big meeting with a lot of people, starting with a, a, a sort of sit back approach, not leaning into the table, can mean that if you do have something to say and you lean forward, it becomes very obvious that you're about to speak. Um, it's a very subtle thing, but it's worth having a try. And another idea is um, you know, often if you start talking and you pause before you make your next point, you can get cut off or interrupted. And one tip that, that I learnt was actually announcing that I'm going to make points and using body language. So if I had three points, I might come up and say, I've got three points to make. I'd physically use the gesture of three points. And as I go through my first point, I knock one off. And I've still got two fingers showing that I've got two further points to communicate. And then I'll make the third, the, sorry, the second and then the third. 
And it seems like a really simple thing, but if anyone interrupts you while you're making your three points, um, it's going to look really rude. <laughs> so I think, I think that's actually a really useful tip. If you've got two points, if you've got three points, and you, you're worried or you often get cut off in the middle of making those points, then use your body language. You may not use it, you may not use this body language, but there are ways of using body language to effectively communicate. I think uh, I did want to talk about keeping it simple and I think this is actually a really um, a hard skill when you work in a very technical, complicated area. And it's very easy to talk to other actuaries in your technical area of expertise about whatever complicated things you have been doing. But the challenge is often taking that and talking to someone who doesn't have the same knowledge base and background and how do you simplify that language and the concepts that you're looking at to figure out how to get through to other people in the business? It takes a lot of practice. Um, it's something that I, I strive for and hopefully I achieve sometimes. Um, but it does take time. And sometimes it's going back to putting yourself in their shoes and thinking about their knowledge base, coming up with an analogy. Often sporting analogies work if you can figure out a way to weave that into a complicated actuarial problem. Uh, but I think the more you can keep it simple and start at a high level. So think about what the solution is or what the, the um, overall uh, concepts are before drilling into the detail. It really helps, particularly with people who aren't actuaries. Give them a chance to ask questions. Figure out how they want to process the information that you're sharing. I think the communication is really important. I think um, when I do reflect, I've seen some amazing actuarial work done in very different environments that has taken a lot of time, um, been considered by a lot of other actuaries and been really well peer reviewed. And time and time again, I've seen the value of it lost because it hasn't been communicated well. And the people that would be the possible users of this modelling work haven't really understood how to apply it. What's the so what about this piece of work? So I really think the communication is um, really important and keeping it simple and focusing on what's the value of this piece of work I'm doing? What does it mean for the business? What's the so what? How can I help people use this information? So I thought I would share with you a solution-orientated approach that I've used. It's somewhat of a non-actuarial model for communicating. I think that this is a bit of an order. So I guess when you're in the actuarial space and you're talking to other actuaries, I think you can ignore situation and complication. I think you can just say, I've got this question, the answer might be this, and there's a certain level of knowledge and understanding that means you're on the same page really quickly. If you're talking to someone in finance, someone in risk, who may not have that same detailed understanding of the work you're doing, I suggest giving them a bit more background and high-level insights into the value of what you're doing. So if I was going to give you an example of this situation, complication, Q&A approach, the situation might be this. I've got a line of business 
that's traditionally been really um, profitable. It's been making us a lot of money for a number of years. We know that we've got really good underwriters, we know we've got really good claims team, and it's been performing really well. The complication is that just in the last three months, we've seen a deterioration spike in the performance. We've done the work, we've checked the numbers, it's not a glitch, it's not an error, it's actually happening, it's just for the last three months. And the question is, is this random bad luck or is it an early warning sign of experience to come? We can all think of three simple options here to address this question. Obviously, the first one is ignore this quarter. Let's revisit it when we have more experience to go from. We've got a lot of other priorities in the business. This is generally a profitable line of business. I'm sure it'll correct itself. Option two, we could jump to the conclusion that this is a new trend. We could talk to the underwriters about repricing immediately so that we can mitigate further losses. Or finally, and the option that I would recommend, Let's undertake a deep dive to understand the driver of the experience and reconvene in next week once I've, seen, once I've got more facts. Now, this is a simple, positive approach to sharing early warning signs that you might come across in your work. And this is a very simple example, but I'm sure that in your technical spaces or the fields that you're working in, that you'll find a way to apply this type of model to help bring the listener up to speed on what the issues are in a way that's easy for them to understand and digest information. I think it's a positive and proactive approach. I think when you can explain three possible options to a solution but recommend one, uh, it will help them see that you've considered a range of options. If you've, if you've already gone and talked to other stakeholders to verify data, to talk to the claims team to see if they've got any ideas, share that information because it backs up your arguments and your recommendations. So the first picture here today is David Brent or Ricky Gervais from The Office. I'm sure all of you have seen an episode of this one. He definitely had confidence and energy, but his decisions were often misaligned with the team and I'd argue that he didn't have a lot of trust. With a similar pose, we have Donald Trump. And he had significant influence across America and was successfully elected. He's a very polarising leader, but a lot of people trusted him and believed in him and thought they had an alignment of views with him. He does have some difficulties at the moment in keeping his team aligned, um, but he could be a great leader, um, potentially with better um, alignment and listening skills. So I think some of the takeaways really is, I do think, as I said at the start, influence is that ability to connect, engage, and get individuals to act on what you have to say. It's increasing your listeners' trust and believability in you. And I hope that you've found it useful. Um, I'd like to take questions, if there are any questions.
but also as a learner in this field, I'd love to hear any examples that you have about things that have been successful in your experiences, trying to influence people and, and engaging stakeholders in your business. So happy to take, happy to take questions or examples. John. Um, hi, Kate. Um, this is Daniel. So thanks for um, the interesting presentation today. Um, just got a question in terms of, I guess, when um, sort of implementing change and sort of um, when you've got sort of a wide range of people that um, will be, that you're trying to influence, but they have all have sort of different priorities and different um, sort of viewpoints of things. So in, in that sort of scenario or that environment, how do you sort of try to balance the different, um, I guess, views and expectations that the different people you're trying to influence have? There, there, that what situation will always arise. Uh, I do think getting people together to debate it openly in the right forum is a good start. Um, hopefully you can have that environment where people feel safe to express their opinions and views and be heard. Uh, and I hope that logic prevails. So often you know, people can try and have those persuasive conversations together and reach a conclusion. Now, you might not always get a full alignment. Uh, and that's quite a challenge really to work out what's that balance of people aligned with your view versus... Um, not aligned and how do you address that? Because it, it is always difficult to get 100% alignment in, in implementing change and it depends on the particular situation. Um, but there will be times where you'll have to accept not 100% alignment. Yep. Try hard. <laughs> yep, cool, thank you. Uh, thanks, Kate. Thanks, um, I guess when, uh, as, as student actuaries, it, it seems we're taught to prepare um, comprehensive uh, technical advice and, and if we recommend something to you know, list out all the reasons why our recommendation might be wrong um, and, and perhaps that doesn't lead itself to um, a sort of compelling persuasive argument in a boardroom. So uh, how do you balance sort of your, your, your technical, thorough, um, actual background with um, having a persuasive and, and um, short uh, argument for change? Yes. So I really struggled with that at first because I think every Tillinghouse report started with reliances and limitations. <laughs> and then there'd be a big section on data and, uh, you know, what are the risks and the findings were often at the end. And what I've found is that people really want to find out the answers straight away. Um, so I think in a time-poor environment where you become a trusted advisor and you have to think very hard about what are the key messages. And there's usually a lot of, um, a, a lot of different ranging risks. So the material ones that you think are really relevant to decision-making you do need to call them out when you're talking about your recommendation. But there's probably a lot that um, you don't necessarily need to elevate to the initial conversation. 
give people a chance to ask the questions and, and work through um, some of that detail later. Does that really answer the question? Yes. Hi, thank you, Kate. Um, I've gained a lot of tips. Uh, just an observation and a question. Um, I think um, in trying to influence other people, it helps to have a very steady and calm demeanour, and I think you've got bucket loads, so oh, I think you've you. influenced me. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the question is, um, could you elaborate a little bit more about around assertiveness um, in passing conversations with other people? I've picked up on that being assertive sometimes can have negative connotations. Um, my own working definition is um, trying to be true to myself and my own opinions. So, for example, um, I don't want to kind of keep quiet if I passionately believe for another side of the argument I want to offer my two cents. Um, I'd like to hear your views. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I think what you're suggesting is being authentic about what you believe in and your ideas. And to some extent, you might be wanting to influence other people about your ideas. So that's important. I guess the, be wary of when you may be um, overpowering other people's ideas or um, not giving other people's ideas enough airplay or opportunity to, to develop. That's all I'd say. I think you do need a certain amount of assertiveness to actually have a say and have a voice. But just be, be wary of it not dominating other ideas. Hello, Kate. Thank you for your speech. Um, I got a, a scenario from my past experience. Um, imagine you are a um, product development coordinator and you are developing a critical unit uh, product and from client department, they want the, um, the definition of uh, uh, units to be strict, strict to be more strict than the previous version. But from marketing department, they want the definition to be more broad. So what I, I'd like to listen to your advice. What would you do in this situation? <laughs> <laughs> so you do want to get the right people in a room to talk about it. Um, I think you want to understand the risks of either side. You want to, you want to flesh out a bit more about what are the pros and cons of each side and the risks associated. So obviously one may impact volume and one may impact profitability and you're trying to balance those two objectives, if I've understood. Yeah, so the marketers want to get more volume and keeping a strict definition is around profit margin and you're going to have to figure out a balance because there's no point in having profitability on two units when you've spent a lot of money marketing a product if you can't get the volume so you have to figure out it, you need a lot more information we can, I'll talk after if you like So, oh, thanks, thanks for that, Kate. That was really good. I got a lot of tips as well. Um, so, just on that example, don't. When do you bring in the decision maker? Right? I guess that's how you sort of go. Someone come in and make the decision. So, how how much do you give that sort of back and forth? 
do you have any tips on that? So if you can't, I say, um, I guess I'm thinking of a situation where you've got a working group of collaborators together. Um, try to formalise what the top three ideas might be and take it to the next level. Okay. Um, if you really can't reach a recommendation amongst yourselves. Thanks, Kate. Ciao. Um, I often see situations where the people who you want to influence are genuinely uninterested in what you have to say. <laughs> Simply because you're trying to influence them. Um, and I see these, you know, in, in my friends' workplace, in my family, in my, you know, members' workplaces. And they try to genuinely try to exclude you or pretend they didn't hear anything from you. Really? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's quite commonplace actually. How do you deal with situations like that? So let me get this straight. I, I need someone's buy-in and I need to influence them, but they don't want to have a bar of it. <laughs> it's a bit of an uphill battle, isn't it? Uh, so I'd be trying to understand why they're not interested. Why aren't they open to hearing from you about this issue? So that it's just resistance to change? And are they a senior leader? Yeah. That's a tough one. I'll try and think about it and come back to you after. Right. A little bit along those lines, I guess, in the things I've seen over time where you've got this desire to try and improve systems or whatever, being actuaries and we deal in technical numbers doesn't always translate to the other people. So being able to translate into meaningful ways the implications of the outcomes. I have you, I've been fortunate because of, of my role to see some really amazingly big step forwards in communicating to non-technical people the impacts of these sorts of things. Yes. Have, have you had that sort of experience and, and so maybe talking about some situations where you've had to translate technical issues in non-technical ways to get people's buy-in? There are a range of examples. I actually think um, images speak louder than words. So often, can you bring it into a diagram? Can you bring it into one particular graph that sums up things? But think about who you're trying to influence. So if you're talking to the CFO, it comes back to P&L and balance sheet. If you can actually say, yeah, I know that's what your current three-year forecast looks like. If we do this, this is what it looks like. That's real to them. But so figure out, you know, what what's real to them, what's their um, their benchmark. Um, if they're really, I, I do think the sporting analogy often works. You know, coming up using. Um, I think there was a time where I just couldn't get the resources or tools that I needed to get a problem solved. Um, and the image that I came up with was, you know, it's like trying to get me to make a sculpture, giving me half of the tools that I need and tying my hand behind my back. You know, I, I can't do this job with the resources that I've got. Um, coming up with ways of expressing things to describe it 
not actuarially important. Just coming back to uh, Charles' comment there, um, would you say that you cannot influence somebody unless they see what's in it for them, I suppose? So if, if a person doesn't see anything in it for them, there's no way you can influence that. Would that be right to say that? It's hard. Uh, so in a work environment, there may be ways around it. Depend so it, it does come back to that business sponsor. So I would think, yeah, there's, there's things that I have to do where I can't demonstrate that there's a win for someone. You know, it might be change and I can't influence them directly. Um, but I'll go back to, you know, going back to the business sponsor and what we're trying to do for the business or for the customer at the end of the day, uh, it may be that their boss can see the value in, in what's getting done and it may, you may not be able to, you know, engage them and influence it. You may need to use more power base to get the change through. But then I guess it's come back to them as well, eventually, that there's something in it for them because their boss will be affected and they <laughs> come Yeah, back I guess if that might be their motivator, that they only want to do things that are recognised by their boss. So sort of continuing on that whole yeah. vein from Charles' first question, I'm just curious how far do you think it's appropriate to go in trying to influence people if they're sort of not, not sort of taking it the first few times? I think in my experience I've sort of pushed things a little far in a couple of cases and ended up get hardening everyone against it, but other times it's worked out quite well and saved a lot of money. So I'm curious how far you think is the right way to go? It really depends on situation and people. I guess one thing I would say is if you're pushing it in a uh, meeting environment where you've got lots of people from different backgrounds or different skill sets uh, and there's some people that you can't get through to, take it offline, go and have a conversation with them outside of the meeting where you can understand what their concerns are, ask them questions about why why they think it's a bad idea, or what do they think you should be considering. It may be that they just haven't been heard in some of that collaboration process. Um, but it's always hard when you've got lots of people from different backgrounds and skill sets to bring them all up to the same level. I think... Um, there was a time where, when I was working in, you know, an actuarial consultancy, where we have a problem and we could all sit together at a meeting, bounce ideas off, and come up with the solution right there in that closed environment. Um, that's really rare in most businesses. You know, if, if as an actuary, there's certain things that you can get your head around really quickly, in a technical way, but to go to a meeting and introduce a concept to someone from risk, finance, underwriting and expect them to soundboard ideas in that meeting and come up with the solution, it's just not going to happen. Um, so try to take um, conversations outside of a decision-making forum and bring people up to the same level before that forum starts so that everybody's on the same page if you actually want to make a decision together. Thanks everyone.
Thank you for thank you for attending today's insight session. Hope you all gained further insight into the um, influencing and engaging stakeholders. And please again join me in thanking Kate for her time. Thank you.